like they got cheated out of an hour this morning. That alarm went off and I went, oh no. Because I've been waking up before the alarm lately. But it snuck up on me this morning. Um, we are taking on the topic of the kingdom this morning. Uh, there's a lot of information that's floating around about the kingdom, living in the kingdom. Is the kingdom here? Is the kingdom not here? Is the kingdom never going to get here? I mean, it's a whole big argument that, that transpires amongst theologians. And what we've just decided to do is just take, take a look at what the scripture has to say. And we're going to try to let the scripture uh, guide our thoughts on what the kingdom actually is. So before we begin, let's take just a few moments for prayer and uh, try to wake up better, get another cup of coffee. If you're dozing off, you can go get another cup of coffee in the middle of class. Nobody will judge you. Okay, let's pray. Father, again, we're so blessed and honored and privileged and challenged to be called your kids. And we thank you for that very fact. Father, I pray this morning as we look into this important topic of your word that you would indeed uh, enlighten us, challenge us, convict us, that we might live appropriately in this, in this time in which we live. For we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were uh, taking a look at Second Peter one um, eleven is where we were, and I know it's a kind of a long side note uh, to uh, move into the kingdom, but Second <clears throat> Peter one eleven says, "For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you." Now he's already talking about believers. So what kind of kingdom is he talking about? And this is always a issue as to what type of kingdom he's talking about. And so we're going to take a look at it. Uh, point 16, which I'm not even sure is on your, your handout today. We're actually at point 6. That's how far we got last, last uh, week. <clears throat> but point 16 is going to deal with the different viewpoints there are about the kingdom. And some is we're living in the kingdom now, which is... Uh, and then others are the kingdom is all physical future millennial kingdom... Every time the Bible refers to it, I don't think it refers to the physical, literal kingdom every time. And there are verses to point that out. So the question is, how does this all balance out? Because it's real easy. It's almost a standard of judgment of orthodoxy. Where do you stand on the kingdom right now? And very few people say... Well, there's both issues of the kingdom. There's a spiritual and a physical kingdom. And when are they? They don't answer those. Or we're trying to let the Bible answer those for us. It should serve to unite the body of Christ. Instead, it serves to divide the body of Christ. So we're trying to find the, the, the middle biblical ground that has been presented. Now, we're at point six, but I'm going to quickly go to <clears throat> through the first five points just to warm up our thinking some of you might be like me and if this last week was very exciting and eventful so you may have forgotten everything since last Sunday but this word is used 336 times in the Bible so it's not a minor topic at all this is not a minor topic at all we looked at the various words where they're used and we're going to track those through the scripture now we're not going to have 
every single usage of the word identified in this study, which is the normal way you do a word study. You have to identify every single word usage. But some of these are very clearly talking about human kingdoms. Okay, if it's a human kingdom, it's not going to have any special consideration because it talks about the kingdom of uh, Kalma and Akkad and all the, the other various kingdoms that existed throughout history. So we're going to just track the, the revelation of the word kingdom in Scripture. <clears throat> now, the first person mentioned in, involving a kingdom was Nimrod. And that goes back a long, long way. Nimrod was a kingdom builder, Genesis chapter 10. It's after the flood, and after that, then there was the dispersion from the Tower of Babel that went into all the world. We had a, <clears throat> I went to a conference last this last week in Houston, a Chafer Seminary Conference, and it was a uh, interesting. Uh, conference to say the least they they usually are I thought this was going to be a real snoozer and actually it was it was a pretty good conference because they talked about Genesis 1 to 11 they looked at alternative dating on Genesis 1 to 11 they did several things in there and uh, I have a book that's right at the point of printing right now on Genesis 1 to 11 so um, not that mine is perfect but but they didn't address my argument. So anyway, we'll, we'll see. But anyway, <clears throat> the first person mentioned in Scripture is Nimrod. Mount Sinai, God laid out a plan for Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the first, usage, uh, first usages we find of the word kingdom has to do with the spiritual aspects of it. Not just physical place where you have a location, you have a nation, you have boundaries, all those physical aspects of having a kingdom with the king. That's, that's not the way it is initially used. Now with Nimrod it was. It was he had an area in between the Tigris-Euphrates and there he had a, a, a position of, of king. He was the first kingdom builder that we, that we see. But this is called, when it, when it gets to Israel... Exodus 19, they've already walked out of Egypt. They're getting ready to get the law. Moses is on the mountain. And it says that you shall be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation to me. So when he first talks to Israel about a kingdom, it has to do with this, the spiritual nature of the kingdom. Now, <clears throat> secularly speaking, a kingdom is an area. It has a king over it. Thus, there have been many kingdoms in human history. Many of them flow. There's still many now. There's a hundred and I can't keep track of them because they keep getting mad and dividing and forming new kingdoms. But they're up somewhere around 180 different kingdoms that are that are around the earth today. So there have been many kingdoms in human history. Now through Moses, it was prophesied that Israel would want a human king to rule over them like the other nations around them. Now, Deuteronomy 17, interestingly enough, this passage is where they started the conference last week. And I discovered it last Sunday. I didn't even know what they were going to do, but it seemed like the Holy Spirit put it together. He did it to get my attention uh, because I thought I could get some extra sleep during some of these uh, lectures. But honest, I'm just speaking truthfully now. Studying Old Testament chronology, etc., can be a real snoozer. We had um, we studied uh, the Exodus problem and its ramifications by Donovan Courville, 
and uh, when I went through seminary, we spent over a year on it, and every time Coorville was mentioned, those in our class would go and go to sleep, because uh, it was, it was uh, how do you figure the overlapping dynasties of Egypt? <laughs> I mean, it was a, but it was important stuff, but it was just boring to go through. Now, Deuteronomy 17, let's go there, please, 14 to 20, <clears throat> because this tells us some, some important things. Because it says, when you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, and you possess it and you live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. So he starts telling them, when you want a king, these are the conditions of getting a king. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Is, is God ambiguous here, or is he very clear? <laughs> You're going to have to talk to me before you pick a king. Number one. Number two, he's not to be somebody that is not a Jew of, of Israel. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. So you're not going back to Egypt. Okay? You're out here. Whether And right now they're in the desert. They haven't taken the land yet. But when you go in the land, things happen. You say, I want a king. Because the other nations around us have a king. We want a king over us. He said, this is what you're going to do. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Now how well did Solomon follow this? And some people say that the Old Testament didn't have any grace in it. Grace, the only reason the Jews still exist today is because of the grace of God. He says, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. Okay, you got a king, you got a kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Now the importance of that verse is significant because it speaks to us about the preservation of the text. Because one of the discussions this last week was, why don't we have the originals? Why don't we have the original autograph of, of Moses' writings, of Joshua? Why don't we have the one where the, the prophet actually wrote it down and signed it? Why don't we have it? And the reason we don't have it, which is a very good reason, is because it would have been enshrined. The Jews especially would have turned it into a shrine. And they would have worshipped the document rather than the contents of the document. And they wouldn't even have known what the document was. So the kings especially were supposed to know the document by application. What if every president of the United States had to handwrite his own copy in the presence of the Supreme Court? And he had to read it every day. That's what it says. Okay. It shall be with him, he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel." 
Now look at look at what that those few verses had to say, and look at what it what about the preservation of the text. Now some of the arguments against the Bible today, and there are many many of them. One of them is we don't have the original autographs. Well, you know it's interesting when you have copies that are made. What do you have? You have accountability that gets built in. When they're made in the presence of the Levitical priest, you have Levitical priests that are watching everything that is being written down, which is the way the text was transmitted. They will cite correctly <clears throat> the earliest Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, and uh, the standard by which most people use your Bibles are translated from the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. The earliest manuscript we have of it is 1000 A.D. Now, <clears throat> that's what about those thousand years? Because some of the arguments are, well, the Roman Catholics got hold of it and they changed it. They changed it to make it fit the theology that they wanted it to fit. So they went in there and amended everything. And the Lord is uh, really smart to say the least, because what he does is give people enough rope to hang themselves. So whenever you say, well, it was all corrupted, okay, in 1000 A.D., we don't know if that's it or not, guess what they found in an area called Qumran, north end of the Dead Sea. They found this bunch of scrolls hidden away in caves, and they dated them before they started translating them. They dated them from various directions. They actually used carbon-14 dating on them. They found out they were from 200 B.C. Guess what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? One of the speakers at the conference actually did excavation on the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's part of what he has done. And uh, it was very interesting to listen because in... 200 B.C., there's a complete Isaiah scroll. Now, Isaiah is 66 books of the uh, Old Testament. So it's a massive scroll. And they laid the Isaiah scroll <coughs> next to the Masoretic text scroll, which was just a, a copy, just like the Dead Sea scrolls. And there was a 95% overlap. Now, that's highly accurate degree of preservation of the text and transmission of the text because they viewed <clears throat> their copies with such a high level of desire to get it right they didn't have Xerox machine this is all hand hand done and they had such a high desire to get these things these things right that they checked them they knew how many letters there were in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 304,590 or something like that. The first five books of the Bible, only six of those letters are in question. And they know that because they check them. They knew what the starting letter was, the middle letter was. They had, they had uh, guide points along the way, and they would write this thing down. Another scribe would come along. Can you imagine being the scribe whose job it was to count letters <clears throat> and be sure you had the right number of letters that were supposed to be from this to this, from this point to this point? And if you didn't, it, was, it was went in the, 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 in the dead pile. 
basically. So there is a high level of preservation of the text because people wanted to do it. The Masoretes were weird people. But it shows that God can use everybody to bring about his plan. I'm kind of divert, divesting here, but it's worth listening to. Anyway, the Masoretes were what they call letterists. Now, the, the letterists were people that were so hyper-literal, they became allegorical. They used Gematria, Notericon. They used some uh, uh, methods of... Uh, calculations, if you will, that said, well, like this word, bara. All right, bara is the B is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The ratio is 20, I think. The A on the end of it is the first letter. So they would have 1, 20, and so this is 21. 3 times 7 is 21. Therefore, it's a perfection of the Trinity. And they could, they could, it's called numerology. And they would take this and put all this numerology into various things. And God said, I can use that. Because these guys care about every letter. So they, they got the text preserved with a high level of accuracy. So whenever we have go back to the Masoretic text now, when we go to those things, we can have a high level of confidence that this is really close to the whatever the original autograph had to say. And that is that for us, that's our argument. That's our argument. Why do you believe the Bible's a Bible? Well, it's pretty well proved itself through history. It pretty well has. And this is called textual criticism, which usually when you hear the word criticism, they want to tear it down. Textual criticism takes a look at it and says, is this really what it is? And they look at what is the original text. Some people spend their lives looking at jots and tittles that they find in these uh, in these manuscripts. And the level of accuracy is absolutely supernatural as to how close it is. Now, <clears throat> Moses, the kings, are supposed to do this. Now, obviously, the kings didn't do it like they should have. But the priests are the ones that kept the copies. And the copies, by the time of Christ, had been copied enough that they were in synagogues. You remember, Jesus walked into the synagogue, read from the Isaiah scroll. Isaiah 61 is what he read. He read from the Isaiah scroll. Yeah, they had manuscripts that were floating around in the first century, and they had a lot of them. So, why why? All the copies, that's how the text was preserved. And according to the Lord, they were supposed to copy it. They were supposed to copy it. Because how long did Moses' autograph of the book of Deuteronomy last? Who knows? Really, who cares? People write about the New Testament. You know, all but 11 verses in the New Testament were quoted by the early church fathers in their writings. If every, if the Bible could be totally annihilated by some tyrannical ruler, if he could totally get rid of all the copies of the book, we could put it back together. Now that's how widespread it has been and how quoted it has been throughout history. Now, <clears throat> back to the point. I spent the first 20 minutes preaching, but I, I enjoyed it. I hope you did. Anyway, human kings were to become people after God's own heart. 
So we're looking here at a spiritual matter. They held a, a physical office. They held that office, but there was there was something that God was looking for in them. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 and 14, Samuel said to Saul, You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's what he said to Saul. But now your kingdom, physical kingdom, the kingdom you've built, shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Guess who that was? And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Kings are supposed to follow the constitution of Israel, especially. That's what the kings of Israel were supposed to do. Now Saul, the first king of Israel, started well, but he ended in disgrace. He started off quite well. In fact, Saul is one of those uh, interesting arguments for the security of the believer. Because at one point he was prophesying, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. I mean, to, to deny that Saul was a believer is really to deny a lot of the evidence. Saul was a believer. But <clears throat> then what did he do? First Samuel 31, Saul said to his armor bearer, he couldn't handle it. Jealousy set in. He tried to kill David. He tried to do everything his own way and establish his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. <clears throat> and Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. His armor bearer would not. For he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and he fell on it. Committed suicide. Hmm. That leads to some other questions. Was, was Saul saved? Because one of the mortal sins supposedly is taking your own life. But the issue of salvation is always about faith in Christ. Nothing else. You remember Samuel was called up with the witch of Endor, called him up and said, Today you'll be with me. Where was Samuel? Paradise. Today you'll be with me, Saul. Your days are over. So <clears throat> Saul, he ended in disgrace. A descendant of David would establish an eternal kingdom. And see, we're following this on through. We're not looking up all the ones that said that, that Og of Bashan had his own kingdom. We're not looking all those, those up. But <clears throat> 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 17. Turn there with me, if you would. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus, thus says the Lord of hosts, Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of the armies. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And you know he's talking to David right now. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, <clears throat> like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Uh, the name David, which we've got a couple of them in here now. The name David 
is one of those names that when you speak of David, frequently people's thoughts go back to King David of Israel. That's, that's where it came from. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Now he's talking here about a kingdom that's going to be at peace and we'll find out later for how long. But he's saying that they're not yet there. David is in the, the Jews are in the land. <clears throat> David is king, but this is what is called the Davidic covenant. <coughs> Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. <clears throat> <clears throat> and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, if you'd gone through the judges, you'd find out that a judge was appointed over Israel. <clears throat> he went and defeated his enemies and said the land had rest. You'll find that little phrase, and the land had rest, through the book of Judges. Because at one time they had one judge ruling over Israel, and then it came to where there were multiple judges by the time that you got to <clears throat> Gideon, Samson, these were multiple judges ruling at the same time in different parts because of the problems going on in, in Israel. <clears throat> the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. The Lord will make a house for you. See, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, didn't he? The Lord said no to that. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name <clears throat> and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart for, from him as I took it away from Saul. Now we see this getting started as, kind of, as a type with Solomon. And Solomon didn't read the whole law, did he? Don't multiply wives, don't multiply horses, don't multiply silver, gold, don't do all that. <clears throat> and Solomon uh, took a beating. How do we know he took a beating? Read Ecclesiastes. He spent 20 years taking a beating before he finally goes, without God, nothing else counts. He finally realized it. He took his sin nature to the maximum, explored it with wine to see what else he could dream up that he could do, and there was a void in his soul that only God could fill, and he realized it. See, wise people learn from their mistakes, but the wisest learn from the mistakes of others. We don't have to make those same mistakes. He says, <clears throat> so I'm not going to take it away from him. Your house and your kingdom, David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice these are, these are futures that he is talking about. It's not right then. Something that's going to be in the future. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. The Davidic covenant given it to him that one day he would have a king that would sit on the throne forever. Daniel 7, 27. 
picks up this concept of an eternal kingdom. <coughs> then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This is speaking of what we know as the millennial kingdom. It's going to be set up and established. There are a lot of other dynamics that feed into the establishment of this millennial kingdom, which we know as prophecy. There are a whole lot of conditions that have to be met. And so we've identified the fact that it's going to happen at the second advent when the Lord comes back and defeats all of his enemies and then he establishes this millennial kingdom. He is ahead over all the nations of the earth, but look, there's still nations because that's the way God has ordained for, for people to govern themselves by means of nations. Now, <clears throat> Solomon, the son of David, was blessed by association with his father. So turn, please, to 1 Kings 9, if you would. He was blessed by association <clears throat> with his father. First Kings chapter 9, first verse. While you're getting there, I'm going to try to get this cough washed down my throat. <clears throat> it says, Now it came about when Solomon finished building the house of the Lord. We're in 1 Kings 9 now. 1 Kings chapter 6 has got a prayer of Solomon that is absolutely one of the most beautiful prayers ever recorded in Scripture. And if you, if you want to do a devotional this week, read 1 Kings chapter 6. Because here, <clears throat> here's a king of Israel on his knees praising God, doing that. <clears throat> He said he'd finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated the house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my hearts will be there perpetually. As for you... If you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity and uprightness. You're reading that and you go, wait a minute, I read the life of David. It wasn't full of integrity and uprightness, was it? <clears throat> Somebody named Bathsheba entered into the uh, bot daughter of Shavaz, what her name means. So <clears throat> somebody did, entered into the scene and there was... But guess what David did? He knew his Redeemer lived, and he knew what he needed to do. And he needed to go back and offer, back then, the appropriate sacrifices. He had to get his heart right. He was a man after God's own heart. Didn't mean it was always right, but he was after it. And so whenever he gets talked to, and Solomon gets talked to about his dad, he said, <clears throat> I want you to walk this way. Now, what did, what did God say about Abraham to Isaac in Genesis 26, 5? <clears throat> because your father Abraham obeyed my voice. Did Abraham always obey his voice? Not hardly. What about Hagar? 
pull the same stunt David did with Bathsheba. But what did they do? They got it straightened out. They got their heart back right before God. And they had believed God and it was imputed to them righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Doing according to all that I've commanded you. And keep my statutes and my ordinances. Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. Just as I promised to your father David. Now how did line of Messiah come? Well, you have, well, we know it went from Jesse to David. How many kids did David have? A lot of them. Well, which kid was it going to line of Messiah going to go through from Abraham to Jesus? Solomon. So, here you have, okay, Solomon, you're the one that got tapped for this. You're in the line of the Messiah. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. If you or your sons shall indeed turn away from following me and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've said before you, (coughs) and you go and serve other gods and follow them, worship them, I'll cut off Israel from the land that that I have given them. Did God keep his word? (coughs) There was a unified kingdom under Solomon. When Solomon died in 930 B.C., the kingdom divided. It split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom went more decadent first, and they were first destroyed by the Assyrians about 714 B.C. And then 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded and took down the southern kingdom. So he did. You don't follow me. I will wrench this kingdom out of your hands. And the house that I've consecrated for my name, my consecrated for my name, the temple of Solomon, <clears throat> I'll cast out of my sight. Now what did the Babylonians do with, with the temple of Solomon? They ransacked it and they carried things off. We have the, actually in ancient documents, Babylonian documents, we have the inventory of what they took from Solomon's temple and took back to Babylon. 300 gold shields. I mean, it's it's an inventory that was there that the quartermasters had to keep track of. So Israel become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will astonish and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord brought all this adversity on them. Solomon was blessed by association with David. That's what he was. Because as a person, he had flaws, just like David did, just like Saul did. He had plenty of flaws. Now, continuing to look at the kingdom, the promised seed of David which is the Lord, Yahweh, who will become flesh in the future, will one day rule over all the nations. David was viewed as a prophet because of the 90-odd psalms that he wrote out of the 150. There's prophecies in them that will just... I don't know how people can read it and not realize this is about the Messiah. 
In Psalm 22, verse 25 to 31. From you, from thee, comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Now, what kingdom is he talking about? It's going to be the millennial kingdom. Okay, He rules over the nations. <clears throat> all the prosperous of the earth, earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Interesting. And there's another verse in the New Testament that says, Every knee shall bow. Where did that come from? Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. <clears throat> it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So this millennial kingdom is going to be a thousand year kingdom. And there's some characteristics of this kingdom that are only for that thousand years. Now, <clears throat> lion lays down with the lamb, being one of them. Everybody at peace with one another. Can you imagine, has that happened in human history? Some people actually believe the millennium's over. Called post-millennialist is what they are called. And you're going, which thousand years did that <laughs> went by and we missed? Where there was peace with, with people for a thousand years. Huh? Ah, okay. His kingdom is based in righteousness. Now you see where this is going when you start looking at the kingdom. His kingdom is based in righteousness. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows or companion. See, his kingdom is based in righteousness. So when the Lord has a kingdom, and the kingdom that he has, it's, it's spiritual. Spiritual is the first issue. What happened at the first advent? They were looking for the physical kingdom, but didn't think anything about the spiritual kingdom. When you look at the Essenes, one of the things that came out the conferences last week, the Qumran community and the Essenes, not far from there, they were premillennial. They were all looking for this millennial kingdom that would, would come. And it's quite interesting. They were loaded with prophecy. People talk about some of the attacks on this. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of information there. You know what their main focus was in the copying of the books and the preservation of the books? Prophecies. And they also had some things in there that were commentaries on the prophecies. They understood <laughs> that the kingdom had not come and the kingdom was going to come. And they were prepping for war to fight with the with the king of kings they were prepping for war to join in that battle with him they were getting ready for it 
Was that a bunch of weird little nuts? Yeah, they were weird. You cannot say anything, but they were weird. But aren't we Christians all weird? One form or another. And they had a devotion to the Lord that was highly commendable to his word, to understanding it, and trying to live it. His kingdom is abundant in grace. Now that's something often left out because everything says obey, 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 obey. But then... Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Now, if the Lord was quick to anger, none of us would be here. That's a fact of the matter. He's slow to anger. The Lord is good to all. Why? His salvation is open to all. The Lord is good to all. He provides rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, air to breathe. That's what he does. He's good to all. His mercies are over all his works. All your works give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men thy mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. So there is such a thing as a spiritual kingdom that doesn't go away. That's established in the Old Testament. John 1.14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to find out a little later who is the kingdom. Not just what. (laughs) Everybody wants the what. Everybody wants the physical. Everybody wants to look out and say, oh gosh, the Lord's on his throne. Now I can go drive my car any speed I want to drive it. I mean, uh, and I was just in Houston, and they do. It's the craziest bunch of people on the highways you ever assembled in one place. I'm doing 70 miles an hour, and there are people honestly doing twice my speed racing with each other, coming down a major highway. Well, thank you, Lord, they got by me. (laughs) Don't let them kill anybody else (laughs) while they're doing it. The God-man's going to rule over the throne of David. Now, some of the prophecies that we look at, when we look at the prophecies concerning Messiah, this is a key one. Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us. Okay? Who? The Jews. Who's speaking? Isaiah. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This means that this child is also God. The literalist Jews missed the fact. That Messiah is God and man at the same time. And it, there it is spelled out. There will be no end to, uh, to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. Why? It was promised to go through Solomon, right? So it was promised to David. It went through Solomon. Solomon was the line that it followed coming out of David. And why all those crazy genealogies in Matthew 1? People, I'm going to read the New Testament. And they open up to Matthew 1 and they go, oh no. 
Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat, and here we go. He says, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. So the God-man will rule over the throne of David. Now, Jeremiah 18, I I have a sweatshirt hoodie uh, that says, One Nation Under God on the back of it. And needless to say, if you're looking at our nation right now, it's obvious that one nation under God, we, we use that word for because we're saying we've been blessed by God. Huh. And I've had people, I actually was out walking one time in, in Yukon, and somebody said, I wish we were still under God. I said, read Jeremiah 18, and you tell me if we're not still under God. The difference being, we have a we have a one-sided view that being one nation under God is always about blessing. Uh-uh. <laughs> it's for blessing or discipline. So we are all there. Jeremiah 18, verse 5 to 11 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in a potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Okay, clearly he's talking to Israel. He says, at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or a kingdom. What did he just go? He went to the universal, right? Not just Israel. To uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom, build up or plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I'll think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. All kingdoms are under God. Some for blessing, some for cursing, and it can change. Whenever a kingdom who once proclaimed God as the supreme ruler, that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. When we once did that and then turned from him, he can pull this nation down in a heartbeat, which prophecy indicates he will, that he will. What about raising up another nation? The book says... He says, I'm going to build this other nation up. He can do it. All nations are under God. And that's the fact of the matter. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love, your grace, your mercy, all your blessings, all your tests. Thank you once again for your word, for preserving it throughout all the centuries to bring it down to us today in a way that we might be able to clearly understand it. So, Father, I pray that we would understand these principles. And, Father, as, as we move through this study, we'll be able to see exactly what, uh, what you mean when you speak of your kingdom through your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.